Well, good evening. It's good to be here with you. I have been looking forward to this as well. I consider it a privilege to have the opportunity to share with you about something that is part of the passion of my heart, and that is the subject of discipleship. Um, the, I kind of gave a, a theme title to this weekend, and that is Why Discipleship? And I hope to answer that question for you this evening. Why discipleship? Why is that important? Um, my wife Dana is along with me. Our church is Mabel Memorial Chapel. Maybe you've heard a, heard a little bit about that. We're there in the city of Harrisonburg, and our congregation is about usually about 50 on a Sunday morning, so a little bit smaller than yours. And I'm a little bit more nervous than I am when I preach to them, too. So bear with me and pray for me. Um, but uh, we have three of our boys along. We have uh, five children. Our daughter, oldest, is married. And um, then we have an 18-year-old son at home. And then our three youngest are with us. They're all boys, so we're happy to have uh, a lot of boys. I like boys. I'm also happy to see some familiar faces in this, in this crowd. There's a lot of you I know, including some formal, former Bible school students. And uh, so I'm glad, for, um, I'm glad for that too. I really uh, have been blessed by my interaction with the ones of you that I know and look forward to learning to know you this weekend. I am more of a... <laughs> I think of myself more as a teacher than a preacher. So as you can see, I'm armed on both sides with, with boards to draw on. Um, but there's been some things that have been really powerful in my life since my early 20s. And the, the primary focus that I have had since my, my early 20s when I realized that I wasn't doing life like I ought to be doing life. And I needed to change something. And I found God in a really powerful way in my early 20s. And there's been two things that have really just driven my life. One of them is, how do I walk faithfully with God? And the other one is, how do I help others to find the same kind of walk with God that I have found? And um, these messages tonight are a result of that pursuit I thought maybe I'd start tonight with an illustration of something that I really enjoy. I really enjoy archery, have for a long time. And, um, you know, shooting a, shooting a bow is more than just drawing the string back and letting it go. If you want to do it well, it's a lot more than that. You've got to hold your grip right. You've got to hold your release right. You've got to have your anchor points right. You've got to have your pin on the target at the right spot. You have to release in the same way every time. If you punch the trigger, you're going to miss what you're aiming at. If you really want to do it well, you're going to have to do it consistently, but you're not just going to have to do it consistently, you're going to have to do it just right. Now the idea of living our lives faithfully is about hitting the target just right. If you have a target, if you have a goal in your life, how are you going to hit that target just right? You better be serious about making sure that you're doing the things right today that are going to project your life 
in a way that it will hit the target just right. There's another aspect to that illustration, and that is when it talks about your posterity in Psalms, it says that, and I didn't, I didn't look at this reference, and I should have, but um, it talks about as heirs are in the hands of a mighty man, so are the children of thy youth. The next generation is also an era that we're projecting into the future. It's, a, it's, a, it's something that we'll project beyond ourselves. What are we doing for them? Are we setting them on a course that's going to take them just right so that they hit the mark with their lives too? And so in that illustration, I gave you both of those things. How am I going to walk faithfully with God? And how am I going to help others to find that same faith? One of the things I'm going to do with the first two messages, you may wonder where exactly I'm going in relation to discipleship, but I I hope to tie together some things from creation and what happened at creation and where we are today and what we need to be focused on today to understand the kind of people that we ought to be and how we ought to live. So I'm going to be trying to connect some things. Stay with me. I hope I can do that for you. The other thing I want to talk that I want to say before I start tonight's message is that I want to, to plead with you to bear with me and be careful as you think about the things that I share with you tonight. I want you to be careful with those things because if, if you take one thing and focus on it and it's not the right thing, it can take you off course. And I don't know that what I'm going to share with you tonight is especially radical or is so much to, t- to take you out of balance, but it, it is looking at history. And when we look at history, we're always interpreting. And these are some things that I have interpreted from history. And I just ask that you take those things back to the Scripture and follow Christ and lean on Him and look at the Scripture and analyze carefully the things that you hear, the things that you see in life. Analyze them carefully through the lens of the Scripture. There's two ways that we can, that we can interpret things. We can interpret, there's two ways we can interpret the Bible and our lives. We can, look at, we can look at the Bible through our experience or we can look at our experience through the Bible. We always need to look through the Bible at our experience. We need to look through the Bible at history. We don't want to do it the other way around. If we do it the other way around, we're going to misinterpret the Bible. The parable of purpose is the title for the message tonight. So there's this little line in the Sermon on the Mount that's, that's, really, that's really powerful, really gripping. There's a lot of them in the Sermon on the Mount, but this one is especially to me. It's Matthew seven fourteen. It says, because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Straight and narrow, few there be that find it. Who are those few? Are you one of those few tonight? The people sitting around you in these pews, are they the few? Who are the few that find it? Well, what is salvation? What is this way that leads to life? have a little illustration for you, but first of all, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. (laughs) 
Matthew chapter 13, Jesus tells two parables in three sentences. And he begins at verse 44. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and hid for joy over it. He goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking beautiful pearls, who, when he had found one pearl of great price, went and sold all that he had and bought it. So here we have two parables. One is a man about a man who found a treasure in a field, and he was so excited about this, this treasure that he hid the treasure, and he went and sold everything that he had, and he came back to get this, this field with this treasure in it. And then the other one is about this man who was looking for special pearls, extremely good pearls. And he finds one pearl that's, that's worth everything that he has, and he goes and sells everything that he has, and he goes and buys that pearl. So we're going to make a pearl here. Here we have a man. This man finds this pearl and he gives everything that he has. He puts aside everything that he has to go and find that pearl. Whatever serves this place in your life is your God. Whatever you're willing to put things aside for, put everything aside for and to serve, that's your God. So we're going to leave that up there, and I'm going to use that illustration some more. So why did God create us? You know, I've often heard people say that God created us to bring Him glory. Well, that's true. But doesn't all of creation bring God glory? All of creation brings God's glory. God glory. So why, what is special about us as human beings? Do we bring God glory in a special way in relation to the rest of creation? Are we unique? That's what I'm, that's what I'm asking. And I tell you that we are. We are unique. <coughs> God created us in His image. He doesn't say that about anything else in His creation. God created us in His image. Well, why did He do that? What did He have in focus by creating these beings in His image? He wanted to be known. God wanted to be known. By creating us in His image, He created us with the capacity to know Him. A.W. Tozer says, You and I are in little, our sins accepted or other than our sins, what God is in large. Being made in His image, we have within us the capacity to know Him. Tozer says, Religion, so far as it is genuine, is in essence the response of created personalities to the creating personality God. God is a person, and in the deep of His mighty nature, He thinks, wills, enjoys, feels, loves, desires, and suffers as any other person may. In making himself known to us, he stays by the familiar pattern of personality. He communicates with us through the avenue of our minds, our wills, and our emotions. The continuous and unembarrassed interchange of love and thought between God and the soul of the redeemed man is the throbbing heart of New Testament religion. End of quote. 
to know God. That's why He created us. He created us to know Him. John chapter 17, verse 3 says this, And this is life eternal. Now I want to take you back to that verse in Matthew 7 where Jesus said, Straight is the gate, and narrow is the way that leads to life, and few there be that find it. So here Jesus is saying, this is life eternal. So we better be listening. Jesus is telling us the answer to this narrow way. That they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. Eternal life is knowing God. There's something about the essence of our life, the very basic purpose, the meaning of our life that is connected to our knowledge of God, to finding a knowledge of God. And that goes right in keeping with the greatest commandment. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy strength, and with all thy mind. So the greatest commandment is a call to be what God created us to be. People who know Him. Beings who know Him. So there's another part to this, and that's the fact that God brought creation into existence through His Word. And by bringing creation into existence through His Word, He spoke it into existence, and then He created man, and He put, gave man dominion over His creation. He made man out of that creation. He formed His body out of the dust of, ground, of the ground. And He made man out of that creation that He had spoken into existence. And then out of that, He made a being that could know Him. And so, in essence, He reveals Himself through His Word. By creating something that could know Him, He created something that revealed Himself. So if we're thinking about this illustration, we have God and His Word creates, or or His Word makes Himself known. It manifests Himself. It brings Him glory. And as beings made in God's image, we also have a desire to know and to be known. Because we are like God who wants to be known, we also want to be known. And it was that very desire to know that Satan played on in the garden. Because, see, it was the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And Satan said, don't you want to know what's beyond God? Don't you want to know that? You'll be like God. Don't you want to know? And that desire to know was what pulled Eve to take that fruit. And I want us to really catch that because there's a key in our desire. We need to understand the significance of our desire. I was talking to my atheist friend last night and uh, he said, we people are not good at controlling their passions. He said, I'm not good at controlling my passions. And he said, I think if we lose our passions, we'll be, we won't be human. 
And I said, so do our passions need to be directed to the right place? And I was thinking about this message. Where are your passions directed? Are your passions directed towards God? Are your passions directed towards knowing God? Or are your passions directed towards those things that are outside of God? Because you see, those are the things that Eve went after. Think about it this way. All that is in the world, John chapter 2, 1 John 2, all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life, those are the things that are the passions that we want to do things that are outside of God's plan for us. That's what it, the world is. It's those things it's those things that people are going after with their passions that are outside of God. The other thing that happened, God said, the day that you eat thereof, you will surely die. And you see, when those passions, when those desires got directed away from God, they shifted our focus. They shifted our, our vision of what life should be. And we became our own God. Self became God. So was there any hope? Was there anything we could do? There was nothing we could do. Because we had broken, we had lost our life in relation to God. If eternal life is knowing God, and we had severed that by our choice, then there was no way for us to have eternal life unless God provided it. It would only be the only way that we as self-centered beings could connect with, a, with an invisible, holy God would be if He revealed Himself. And the Word was made flesh. You have to forgive me for how disproportionate this is. God revealed Himself through His Word. The Word made flesh. The Bible says of Jesus in Colossians 1, 13-15 that He was the image of the invisible God. Hebrews 1, 1 1-3, the express image of God's person. Jesus came to reveal God to us so that we could know Him again. And the living Word reveals God to us. John 14, 6, Jesus saith unto him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. The life and teachings of Jesus reveal God to us. And so knowing Jesus is eternal life. So what do you want to tell someone who wants to find salvation? You say, go to the life and teachings of Jesus. 
and learn to know who Jesus is. So where did Jesus go? Where is Jesus now? He went to the Father. So how do we learn to know Him? Through the written Word. We learn to know Him through the written Word. Now I want to make a distinction here. John 17, 20 said, neither, says, Neither pray I... This is still in, in John 17. Jesus is praying for his, for his disciples. And then He says, Neither pray I for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on Me through their Word. Knowing the written Word, or the written Word is the testimony of the living Word. So the, the written Word is the testimony of the disciples about their connection, their observation of the living Word, Jesus Christ. It's true. We can trust this Word. It is the written Word, but this is not Jesus. This is the written Word. The knowledge of the written Word does not guarantee knowing the living Word. I've spoken with people who are unbelievers who probably know the Bible better than I do. But they're unbelievers. Jesus said, you must be born again. We must undergo a spiritual change by, through, again. This is the catalyst. It's what takes us there. It's what takes us to Christ. But what I want to focus in on is the fact that we are looking at a person. We're looking at Jesus. As it says in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, despising the shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. The focus is on the person of Jesus Christ. To see Christ, to see His character, to see His nature, and then to follow Him, and walk with Him in life. And that's what the essence of human life and salvation are bound up in. Knowing and following the person of Jesus. That is what makes life meaningful. There is no other way to find a meaningful life than following the person of Jesus Christ. So I want to talk about three things, and then I'll have some more illustrations for you. One of them is the person, Jesus, who He was. The other is the principle, what He lived, what He taught and lived by. And the third thing is the practice, what He did. So in the Old Testament, Abraham received a promise, and that promise was for a seed that would come. And that seed was a person. And in the first words that Jesus said, help us to understand the first recorded words that we have, help us to understand the significance of His person. Luke 2, 49 says, and this is when He was in the temple at 12 years old, His parents came back looking for Him, and He was sitting in the temple talking with the teachers. And He said to them, Why did you seek Me? Did you not know that I must be about My Father's business? What's he saying there? He's saying, I am the son of my father. My being, it's because of my being that I'm here. It's because of who I am. This is my person. 
And his life, the rest of his life, was an outflow of that being. What he did, what he said, what he taught, that flowed out of the fact that he was the Son of God. In the hymn, Break Thou the Bread of Life, it says this, Beyond the sacred page I seek thee, Lord. My spirit pants for thee, O living word. Now, I said I wanted you to be careful. And this is, this is one of those places where I want you to be careful. We're not saying that we go somewhere besides here to find Jesus. We're saying that through here we seek Jesus. Is that clear? What am I really looking for in the pages of this book? When I'm reading my personal devotions in the morning, what am I really looking for in the pages of this book? Am I looking for a new value system? Am I looking for a new idea? Or am I looking for a person? Am I looking to be, to, to be drawn closer into a deeper relationship with a person? Jesus' call throughout the Gospels was to believe in Him. When the Jews asked Jesus how they could do the works of God, Jesus had the perfect opportunity to preach another Sermon on the Mount. But he cut to the heart of it. He said, this is the work of God, that you believe on him whom he hath sent, that you believe in the person. How about the principles that Jesus taught, that lived and taught? Mark 1.22 says, And they were astonished at his doctrine, for he taught them as one that had authority and not as the scribes. The principles that Jesus taught throughout his life were taught on the basis of his authority, the authority that the, the impact of his words in that passage came out of his person. So you think about the times when you communicate with, with somebody. The value that you give to their words is usually the value that you have for that person. If you really respect that person and they say something to you, you're probably going to value that pretty highly. But if it's somebody that has let you down, maybe somebody that has, has lied to you multiple times and they say something to you, you're going to be like, uh, it might be right. Their words aren't going to have very much authority because they're not trustworthy. So the connection that the, the value that you give is the value of the person. The value that you give to their words is the value that, that the person has. And Jesus had authority because of his person. He was the son of God and his words carried that authority. How about what Jesus did? Jesus says some interesting things in John 14. He said, Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father in me, or else believe me for the very work's sake. Verily, verily, I say unto you, He that believeth on me, the works that I do, shall he do also. And greater works than these shall he do, because I go to my Father. What was Jesus saying? Was Jesus saying, Believe on the work that I do? No, he didn't say that. He said, Believe on me because of the works I do. Because the works that I do are coming out of the power of my person, believe on me. I'm sorry, having trouble with my pages here. I'd like to, I'd like to shift gears a little bit. I'd like to talk about history. And I try to help us to understand 
some concepts, some different church concepts. One thing that I forgot to say at the beginning, this might be a good time to say it is, this thing of discipleship is not about a church program. I want you to understand that. I am not talking about a church program. It's a way of thinking about life and church and about how our responsibility as Christian people. So I'm going to talk about church some, but the reason I'm going to talk about church is because I think it's an easy way to help us to, to wrap our minds around big ideas because we can see them in bold. Okay, We can see them because they, they carry a, a volume of people. So you have like the Catholic Church. There's a lot of people in the Catholic Church. You have Protestant churches. There's, there's a big volume of people in Protestant churches. Okay, Well, the Protestant Church, the Catholic Church and the Protestant churches, they come out of their children of their theology. So the things that they believe about God or about who God is, the reason the churches are like they are today is because of what they believe God is and how they live as a result of that. And so I'm talking about it from that, from that perspective. These principles are also true in your own life. So if you, as an individual, live as a Catholic, you will go in a direction. And if you live as a Protestant, you will go in a direction. If you believe like they do, you will go in a direction. So I'm, I'm, I'm talking from both of those perspectives, in a sense, because... We're talking about church. We're also talking about life. So I was just talking about Christ, the person, the principle, and the practice. Well, you also have a person, a principle, and a practice in your life. Is it rightly directed? So now we're back to this idea of, of, of how are we directing our lives. And I've heard many times that we need to teach more than just practice. So we need to have practice. But we need to teach more than just practice. We need to have the principle that's underneath the practice, right? You agree with that? Yes, we need to have the principle that's underneath the practice. But we need more than that too. We need something deeper yet. We need the person of Jesus Christ. So I'd like to make you a Catholic church. So we'll put God in there just for point of reference. Hopefully you can see this. I'll step out of the way here in a minute and you'll be able to see better. Okay, so right here we have a Catholic church. God is up here for, for sake of, of purposes, what they believe is God. The church is connected through the cross, all right? And you come down here and you have this, you have this structure. And the structure basically represents their sacraments, okay? So they have these sacraments that they do. 
that, are, that you do if you're part of the Catholic Church. The door to the Catholic Church is baptism. You get baptized, you're in. You take communion, you, take, you, you perform the Mass, you stay in. You do your um, penance, you do your um, confession. That's, that's how the Catholic Church operates. It operates by these, these sacraments, these practices that they do, and that's what makes or that's what forms the Catholic Church. Now, there's an important thing to think about. How many Catholic churches are there? There's one Catholic church, right? Okay? Keep that into your mind, because you're going to see something else here in a minute that's going to be really interesting. There's one Catholic church. Churches that focus on practice are not as affected by the society around them, because the practices are their focus. And so maintaining the practices is important, and that takes priority. In some senses, their sacraments are their God, in some senses, because that's what they focus on. And so to hold on to those practices is the most important thing that they can do, because that's what their church is. That's what they see their church as. So to get in, you, you are baptized. To stay in, you take communion, and the rest of your life is just whatever the rest of your life is. Now, this may shock you, but today, just about every horse and buggy old order church is just about, by form, Catholic. Just about exactly by form, Catholic. All right, how about principle? Let's move to Luther. He was a reformer. Luther focused on the principles of Scripture. Luther wanted to reform the Catholic Church with the Scriptures. And, but there was something really interesting about Luther. He thought that Romans was the principal book of the Bible. He thought it was the most important book in, in the New Testament was the book of Romans. And he focused his teaching, he, he centered his teaching on the book of Romans. His focus was the work of Christ and the knowledge of the principles of truth. So to know the principles of truth was what salvation was to Luther. And also he focused on the work of Christ or what Christ had done to satisfy God in relation to salvation. Now this is really simplistic, okay? I'm trying to, to paint you a big picture. But it caused the individual to a mental assent to connection with God. Simply to agree with the principles. So if the Bible talks about justification by faith in Christ... If you agree with that mentally, if you agree with that in your knowledge, in your mind, if you just simply agree with it, then you're saved. And so you can say, well, you're, I'm concerned about hell, so I'll say the sinner's prayer and I'll be saved. And then, but it's, it's, a, it's a very individualistic look. And 
in a big way, it was a reaction to the Catholic Church because the Catholic Church was very collective in its understanding of the Scripture. So, correspondingly, Protestantism has been very susceptible to the pressure of society because it's very individualistic-based. And so when you have something that's more individualistically based, it's going to always be more susceptible to society, to the pressure of society. So how many Protestant denominations are there? You with me? Strong men, strong Protestant teachers stood up and started denominations, individual denominations. And those denominations have carried on We'll get into more of that later, but let's draw us a Protestant church. Okay, well, I better explain this. Okay, so up here we have Protestant God. We have each individual Christian connected individually to to God. And we have this little umbrella. And this little umbrella is the work of Christ that essentially God sees when he looks at the individual. You'll find this interesting. Protestantism does not need the resurrection. The only thing they need the resurrection for is for proof of Jesus' divinity. That's basically the only thing they use the resurrection for. Everything is in the work of Christ on the cross to the Protestant view. And when God looks at you in the Protestant view, He sees Christ's righteousness, not you. He sees Christ and Christ's righteousness. And he accepts you on that basis. I'll get into that a little bit more later. Okay. Now we've got to fast forward again. We've got to come up to into the 18th, 1800s. In the 1800s, there was a tremendous shift happening in the, in the secular world. And that tremendous shift was modernism, liberalism, and Darwinism. And the, this stuff really hit, really impacted the intellectual side of Protestantism. And especially liberalism was tearing down the scriptures. Now, what did I just tell you that Protestantism was based on? It was based on the principles of this book. And so when liberalism came along and started saying, that the scriptures were not dependable, that the miracles that Jesus performed didn't actually happen, they were metaphors and all those, those kinds of things. Some of the Protestants, Protestant church started to move in that direction to save itself intellectually. So they wanted to retain their place in the intellectual side of the world. There was another group of Protestantism that said, wait a minute. This is tearing down the foundation of who we are. This is tearing down the scriptures. This is tearing down the foundation of who we are. And, and they said, we've got to do something about this. And Protestant fundamentalism was born. 
Protestant fundamentalism was they took the doctrines of Scripture and they turned those doctrines into structure. They said, you have to believe these things to be a Christian. And so they made, they didn't use sacraments. Instead, they used, they used doctrines and said, we're going to put these, these doctrines as requirements for you to be a Christian. So they did this. So now you have still a Protestant theology where it's, it's more individually connected, but you have this structure built around and each one of the Protestant, each one of the Protestant um, denominations has kind of their own structure of doctrines that they hold up as significantly, significantly important. And, and so they, um, they really focus on those, on those specific doctrines. Uh-oh, I'm not much of a teacher after all. I think I spelled that wrong. So, what should we be getting from this? Well, essentially, and I already kind of alluded to this, but the, the Protestant fundamentalism was an attempt to, in some ways, marry, even though they would, never, they would never tell you this, but bring together both Protestant theology and Catholic structure. And so it was an attempt to, to retain their Protestant thinking or theology, but then structure it with, give it enough structure to save itself, to keep it from being completely blown away by a modern and postmodern society. Okay, so now let's take a look at Anabaptism around that same time in the 1800s. So the Anabaptist Church in America had problems in the 1800s. There were some good, there were some good people. There were some good things that happened in the 1800s, but there were also there was also a lot of spiritual laxness. Laxness. There was a lot of of land available, and people were, Mennonite people were pursuing land, they were pursuing um, establishing themselves, and, and uh, there was a lot of spiritual lackness, laxness, and <clears throat> as Protestant fundamentalism started to move up through the mid to latter part of the 1800s, they started using different forms of church structure 
that uh, were different from the past. There were things like Sunday school, um, revival meetings, protracted meetings, things like that, that they were using as a way to evangelize, but also as a way to uh, strengthen their, their viewpoints, to strengthen their doctrines. And this, at this point, the Mennonite and Brethren churches were pretty much all just one body. Okay, so we didn't have, there wasn't all these different Mennonite churches, all these different, uh, and, and we, I mean, we wouldn't think about the Brethren churches really being as anything like what we are. But back in the late 1800s, the Brethren churches were really very much like we are. Um, and so we're very closely connected to one another. But uh, there were some influential people in the 1800s that started, that, that went to some Bible schools, uh, some of these fundamentalists, and brought some of these ideas to the Mennonite church. And so in the late 1800s, you see the Mennonite church picking up things like Sunday school, protracted meetings, things like that in the late 1800s, and borrowing some of these ideas from the Protestant fundamentalists as a means of activating or bringing life into some of their spiritual deadness. Well, there was a group of people that weren't happy about this, and they were the old order groups, okay? They, we didn't, they didn't know anything about the old order groups at the time, obviously, but they separated from the general conference, and the, word, the term old order essentially means old order of service. So they retained the old order of service, and they didn't take protracted meetings um, and so on. So like the Horning Mennonite Church, which drives cars, is also old order because it retains the old order of service. And so that they wanted to keep those old practices. The General Conference started some Bible, started some colleges, uh, EMU one, was one of them in particular, and started to, they, they, they borrowed not only some of, the, some of the practices, but also some of the ideas of fundamentalism, and one of the ones, I'll just give you one that helped us, okay, so prohibition helped us with alcohol. Mennonites were making alcohol in the late 1800s, and Prohibition came along, and, you know, society started to say, you know, this is bad, this is a bad thing to do, and the Mennonites woke up and said, yeah, it is, we better quit it. And so they quit making alcohol. Not all of them were, were doing that, but some of them were. But one of the things that also happened was that there was also a tilt in Anabaptism around the early 1900s, towards a more Protestant view of salvation. And I, I, f- I found this really interesting, but in the last, at least in the last year, there were at least three times that once was at a local church, but twice it was, once it was in conference and once it was at a conference, um, a, a large conference group, that we were warned about the fact that we have adopted some aspects of Protestantism in our understanding of salvation. Now, granted, I was one of the the people that did that because I'm concerned about 
some of our view of salvation. Um, but there were two people separate from me who also said, you need to pay attention, we're adopting some aspects of Protestant viewpoint about what salvation is. So something for you to think about, something for you to study. Anyway, in the general conference, in the general conference field, there was still this tension, especially in the academic world, which was putting a lot of, in, in the Virginia area, that was putting a lot of, of preachers into the pulpits was, uh, were academic people, people from uh, EMU, teachers at EMU were, were in a lot of our pulpits um, here in Virginia. And so there was this, there was this growing tension between kind of this, this fundamentalist influence and also some of the liberalism uh, viewpoint that was in the Mennonite church coming up through uh, the 40s and 50s. And that tension finally broke. And the liberals took the day. And a large part, like you can see very clearly, the place where EMU general conference is today, where a lot of the other general conferences are, they're way out there in relationship with what we believe. But there were groups of people who said, no, wait a minute. You know, things, are, things are getting out of hand. We need, to, we need to pull back from this. And so as you come up through the, the 60s and 70s, you have people, uh, groups coming off of the general conference groups and being more conservative in their viewpoint. Uh-oh. I'm not too far from done. The more conservative elements, and that's what I want to focus on because that tends to be what, that's, that's pretty much where we are. We're on the more conservative element of that split from um, General Conference. Tends, I think, this is my perspective, okay? So take it as my perspective, not the Word of God. It tends to carry more of that fundamentalist influence. The tension was there over the Mennonite, the Mennonite practices, kind of the Mennonite practices. So you see how the, the, the Protestants, when they, when they did the fundamentalism thing and kind of married up with the idea of Catholicism, they didn't take the... the Catholic practices. They kind of made their own practices. And the Mennonite church in its development, in, in its fundamental influence has kind of developed its own set of practices. And so they, when, when that split, they tended to carry that, some of that fundamentalist thought process into that split. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you something that I saw when I came into Southeastern. Like I said, the Lord started to work on me when I was in my 20s. And as I found the Lord and started to pursue Him, some people started to give me some books. And the books were aimed at explaining to me why 
the things that I was seeing were wrong. Like, here, this book will help you to understand why this isn't a good direction to go. And this book will help you to understand why this isn't a good direction to go. And I soon realized, praise the Lord, that those books all were written by a human author who had a point to make. And I said, I don't want to be influenced by people. I want to be influenced by God. And I went to His Word, and I spent about eight years reading almost nothing but the Bible in my reading time. So I pretty much got rid of all reading other than what was in here. And I said, I want to develop my theology and my understanding of of the Scriptures from the Bible. And when I came into Southeastern... And there's, I know there's some of this in my own life. I see some of it in my own life. There seemed to be something that I just couldn't quite put my finger on. The teaching was amazing. And I remember my wife and I going home and saying, wow, that was just such good teaching. Why does it seem like some people just aren't connecting the dots? Why does it feel that way? Was that judgmental of me? I'm sorry if it was. But it just felt that way. It just felt like some people weren't connecting the dots. The teaching was there. It was helping me to grow. What, what was this thing? What, what could I not quite put my finger on? And I think part of the reason, maybe not all the reason, Part of the reason is because we've left something from our Anabaptist roots. And that something is discipleship of Jesus Christ. And I'll explain to you what I mean. The Anabaptists did not take a marriage of Protestantism and Catholicism. They said, we want to develop a new church from the Bible. We don't want to reform the old church. We want to build a new church from the Bible. There's a quote from a man who pretty much directly opposed Hans Dink. His name was, I mean, pretty much directly opposed Luther. He was in Luther's area. His name was Hans Dink. And here is a summary of the difference between him and Luther. Luther taught the doctrine of justification by faith, whereas Dink's whole emphasis was put instead on discipleship to Jesus. His motto was, get this, No one may truly know Christ except one follows Him in life. What is our God? What are we really following? And I know in my own life that there have been two things in my generation that have been tremendously powerful and a tremendous pull for me to follow. One of them is material prosperity. And material prosperity gives you material independence. And there's significance to the idea of independence here. And the other thing is social independence. We have the capacity to communicate in a much broader way than what four generations ago did. Even two generations ago did. Today we can communicate very broadly and that gives us a sense. It's not real social independence. It gives us a sense of social independence. So we speak about following Christ. We give lip service to following Christ. And I'm speaking to myself here, brothers and sisters. But what do we really mean by that? Because what lies behind Dink's statement 
is being with Christ. To be a disciple of Jesus is to be with Him. In Mark chapter 3 it says, And He ordained twelve that they should be with Him, and that He might send them forth to preach. So He wanted them to be with Him, and then from being with Him, He could send them forth to preach. So to be a disciple of Jesus means to be with Him. The second thing it means is to be like Him. Again the quote, No one may truly know Christ except one follows Him in life. If we believe like Hans Dink did, that Jesus is the embodiment of the perfect person, then we will want to be like Him. If we believe He is who God created us to be, the very image of God, then that's what we would want to be like. We will want to be like. Jesus called His followers to give up their person. And He said to them all, If any man will come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow Me. For whosoever will save his life will lose it. But whosoever will lose his life for My sake, the same shall save it. For what is a man advantaged if he gain the whole world and lose himself or be cast away? What advantage is there for us to put up anything as God besides Him? The whole world. All the possessions we could have. Everything we could have. The ability to communicate with every person in the world. If we could gain all of that and we'd lose ourselves or be cast away, what would we have gained? We'd have gained nothing. And Jesus says, give yourself up and come be my disciple. Remember what I said we had made our, who we had made God after the fall? We made ourselves God. We have to give ourselves up to be a disciple of Jesus and to know God again. Second Corinthians 4.10 Always bearing about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus. Here's the resurrection. That the life also of Jesus might be made manifest in our mortal flesh. That the life of Jesus might be manifest through you and I. We give up our person to gain His person. And this is far deeper than acting out a set of values, than living out a set of values. This is about a change of person. This is about a change of being. It's about sharing His worldview, loving the things that He loves, hating the things that He hates. Sell what you have and go and buy the field. Go and buy the pearl. And that is the core of our Anabaptist roots, being a disciple of the person of Jesus Christ. That's how they lived. And they sealed it with their blood. We have not been faced with that yet. But they sealed their faith with their blood to follow Jesus. Jesus went through the cross to exaltation with His Father. But how did He go? He went through a life of love, service, humiliation, and sacrifice. Philippians chapter 2. The mind of Christ. If you want to know how Christ lived, look at Philippians chapter 2. Look at the mindset that He had. The thought process that He had. You see, the problem isn't really that 
we borrowed from the fundamentalists. The problem was that we wanted an easier road than the cross. I remember one Sunday morning after the service was over, I don't remember what the service was about or anything. I walked out of the church and I was asking myself this question. Do I know Jesus? Do I really know Jesus? I know about Jesus. I know what Jesus did. I know what He said. But do I know Him? And that question would not let me go. And I had to seek Him to find the answer to that. And you can, you will find an answer to that if you seek it. It is easier for us to be given a list of principles and practice to live out than to establish and maintain a vital relationship with the person of Christ. The mystery of the gospel is in 1 Corinthians 1, sorry, Colossians 1.27, Christ in you, the hope of glory. The person of Christ is the second Adam, the representation of what humanity was meant to be, the image of the invisible God. Biblical salvation is neither Protestant nor Catholic. It is transformation of your being as a result of God, of Christ, living in you. It's, from being, it's, from, it's going from being an alien, an enemy of God, to being a beloved child. It comes through the death of the old man, who we were, Romans chapter 6, that self-centered individual. Two, Romans chapter 7, by, by dying to who we were, we become free from the law to be joined to another. Romans chapter 7, to be joined to Christ. And then through that joining together with Christ, Romans chapter 8, we are led by the Spirit, we walk by the Spirit, the power of Christ in us, puts to death the flesh on a daily... Word left me. Putting the flesh to death daily. That's what I'm looking for. And the righteousness that comes forth from that. Romans chapter 8 verse 4. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the Spirit. The narrow way, few there be who find it, may we be disciples of Jesus Christ. And may the passion of our hearts be with the cry of Paul, that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings and be made conformable unto His death. Let's stand together for prayer.